Welcome to the first Rethink Energy podcast of 2022. This is uh, quite a significant moment for Rethink Energy. We're going to make um, some changes to our services in the coming weeks. Um, we're just about to complete our second um, uh, global uh, electricity forecast, um, which will also be out by the end of January. And we're also about to launch Harry's global hydrogen forecast which will be plugged into that global electricity forecast as well. So we're all kind of quite um, buzzed about um, 2022 and we produced uh, a very interesting issue. And I think we're going to talk about... Um, well, to start with, it's um, Harry's piece on the hydrogen pipeline, isn't it? Electrolyzers okay. in particular. I think it was in Chile, was it? Well, it's actually a combination of, of two stories, really, um, both sort of highlighting how hydrogen's really kicked off, kicked off from the start of the year um, on a strong foot, really. I mean, the first story that uh, in the issue is about Cummins um, signing a, jo- uh, a joint venture with Sinopec in China for a gigafactory and sort of the rise of the rise of gigafactories there. So um, the factory itself is going to be in the Guangdong province of China. Hopefully, I think it's online by 2028. But if you actually look at the timeline at which these gigafactories can be developed, it would be surprising if that wasn't significantly sooner. The most interesting thing about it potentially is the fact that it's going to be a a PEM electrolyzer factory. So that's protein exchange membranes. Generally in China, we've seen a preference towards alkaline electrolyzers. Um, They've been around for much longer. Currently, they're a bit more efficient. Uh, They're cheaper and the materials they use are a lot more sustainable generally but when you actually look at the performance that proton uh, exchange membranes can offer the trends really are that there will be a higher performance there and they're much more flexible to use i think if you've got if you're at operating at capacities lower than rated so say it's a 10 megawatt electrolyzer running on one megawatt of solar the hydrogen you can produce through a PEM electrolyzer is significantly higher than through uh, an alkaline electrolyzer so it's interesting seeing that China sort of maybe starting to veer away from um, what they've done before. I mean, the, the electrolyzer manufacturers in China, like Peric, like Sunhu uh, Jingli, really haven't managed to compete on a global scale yet with Western um, manufacturers producing PEM electrolyzers. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not they're going to try and take hold of the electrolyzer sector in the same way that they did with the solar sector. I, I love this story for a number of uh, different reasons, as well as, as everything you've just said. I mean, why does China need Cummings? And I, I know that um, Cummings bought Hydrogenics, and, and that obviously has a, a bit of an advantage. And, and, and you just explained, they're all AEM electrolyzers, and they want to move into PM just to cover that base. Even so, I would imagine that they could have found a, a Chinese company with that kind of experience. And secondly, it's the word gigafactory. I believe that the whole energy transition is coming together around multiple classes of gigafactories. And here we are talking about a gigafactory, perhaps the first time we've used that term in conjunction with electrolyzers. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a new thing. I mean, if you go back to the middle of 2019, no one had even announced a gigafactory since we've seen i mean there's one we've got one in operation from itm power in the uk but there's now something like 30 up to sort of 35 gigawatts of gigafactory scale production in the pipeline <coughs> itm power's got up to sort of five gigawatts planned cummins has another deal in spain with iberdrola so there's and there's yeah probably about 10 other companies across sort of 
PEM, AEM and solid oxide electrolyzers that are all pushing forward with plans that have significant production capacity online within the next few years and sort of really fully realized by 2030. And if you look at the rate at which these are built, I mean, it only takes around sort of 18 months to build one of these factories. And the rate at which these announcements are coming, it really wouldn't be surprising to see 100 gigawatts of production capacity by 2030. No, um, I think much more. I, I, you know, exactly. I, I think it's just going to keep rolling and keep rolling. This supports what we've been saying about about the way energy transitions happen, about what large-scale technology transitions happen. They don't happen project by project. I mean, they do, but you don't. It's not the headline news that we're going to build three gigawatts of this by ten years. It's it's more that they build factories and they make and 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 they make many small parts, which then have layers that that, that take them to market, that distribute them, that get them in the hands of developers. That that finally someone actually installs, and you have legions of installers, just like the solar industry. Um, and, yeah, and, and it, it's an, it's another. It's not, if you're looking at this this news and, and you're in the solar industry, you're, you're looking at it really. I mean, you're seeing the rate at which electrolyzers are going to be manufactured. It's not going to be wind power that's going to pick up the slack in terms of the electricity we're producing. It's going to be solar. I mean, to, to the for the bulk of it anyway. So, so for every 10 megawatts of electrolyzer you're you're building to put online, you're going to need 10 megawatts of solar to power it. So, uh, and uh, and the rest really. So it's. Again, just an, a really good boost for the solar sector, a really good boost for the hydrogen sector in general. And I think you'll we'll probably see a lot of solar manufacturers try and expand into electrolysis. And we've seen it with um, with Longi in China as well. And I think if they can take the learnings they did when it from the solar sector to advance. So, I mean, if you look at historically every time the installed global capacity of solar power has doubled, costs have fallen by 23%. If you can do that in electrolysers, they're going to be cost competitive in the next year or so, really, two, three years. I mean, we've only got 300 megawatts installed today. So uh, the costs that we're going to be seeing by the end of the decade are going to be minuscule. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering what this looks like. You know, I mean, what does a solar installation look like? You build a, you put in a few thousand um, panels and then, you know, what's what's in the inverter chain? Do you put a load of storage there? Um, do you put uh, an electrolyzer there as well um, before uh, in front of the inverter do you put them behind the inverter do you put them close together do you trade the energy in and out of these or do you build the whole thing and own all of it and just act as a cent- single centralized resource well, that's often where the the why the debate between the different types of electrolyzers is still ongoing i mean if you look at solid ex- oxide electrolyzers they actually make a lot of sense in terms of their uh, operational efficiencies when they're operating in environments where you've got a large amount of waste heat. So if you're in an industry heavy region, for example, having a solid oxide electrolyzer in a fairly big uh, renewables plant makes a lot of sense. But then if you're going down to a rooftop installation for a house um, in the middle of nowhere and you need some sort of hydrogen production, the small small scale uh, alkaline electrolyzers that you see from the likes of Anapta, they really make sense there. So it's and, and think, then is PEM more te- uh, more advanced than the other two in general? So there's sort of a space for all three of them. Uh, PEM electrolyzers seem just seem to work well in terms of uh, individual renewable installations. So not necessarily on the grid level where you're um, feeding all the electricity into the electrolyzer uh, nonstop. I mean alkaline electrolyzer uh, alkaline uh, electrolyzers make a lot of sense there. Uh, I mean it's difficult to say in terms of how it's going to progress. I mean we're seeing so much research going into both at the moment. Um, but in terms of having 
an electrolyzer unit paired with a renewable installation, PEM electrolyzers really do have an advantage of being able to sort of ramp up and down their production rates with the output from the renewables plant itself. Yeah, but if you, but then again, if you also pair them with battery, they don't have to ramp up and down. They can just get a constant feed. Exactly, and that's where suddenly then you might have alkaline membrane uh, electrolyzers having a bit of an advantage there. So it, again, it's it's difficult to say at this time because we're seeing so much research that's saying, oh, production incre- uh, increases are going to be thirty fold by doing this in PEM electrolyzers, but then you've got the same sort of in, uh, research going into alkaline uh, electrolyzers. But there, that certainly are advantage of, of all three um, and I think there will be all three used to some extent in the future it's just which sort of seem to dominate in terms of the actual hydrogen infrastructure on, like a, on a national scale potentially. So Harry when you were writing your uh, hydrogen report which I know is you know we're in the last few days of you know, we're going to get that out before the uh, in the next couple of weeks um, did you picture the hydrogen being made more often where it's going to be used or did you picture it being made in one central location or did you picture it even being made in a different country and shipped how are you picturing the structure of uh, the hydrogen industry for distribution yeah that is a really interesting question because i think there's very much two schools of thought in terms of where it's going to be produced but in the same sense we've got with renewables really i think in terms of producing hydrogen in bulk, and I think if, if we're trying to replace the oil and gas industry, which essentially is what we're trying to do with hydrogen, the ability to produce hydrogen at scale and store it and distribute it really does favour these these large scale projects uh, in the middle of the desert or, as we've seen this week, um, in the middle in southern Chile, where you've got these ridiculously strong winds onshore. And if you're looking at things like distributing ammonia, for which is probably going to be how the shipping industry is powered in the future. That's where it's actually cheaper to produce it in somewhere remote and then transport it than it is actually to produce it on site. So I think there was a, a study quite recently that it makes more sense for Germany to import ammonia from uh, green ammonia from Chile than it does for them to produce it themselves in Germany, purely just the cost of renewable electricity. We're surely better to produce it in a neighbouring country rather than travel all that way, and and perhaps just have a cable from that country and then produce it where they are. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of, there'll be a lot of modelling that's going into this. And I think um, that it it will be some sort of combination of, of the two. I think in terms of when you're looking at your day-to-day production of hydrogen uh, or your need for hydrogen as, a, as an individual, if you're looking at potentially your, your home heating, maybe your vehicle, I mean, it's very unlikely that you have a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle um, in the future. Then I think th- this small scale on-site production makes sense. It will make sense massively in in industry um, if you can have on-site production if you're at steelworks, for example, if you've got a neighbouring wind wind farm, which often you do in these industrial complexes. But in terms of sort of the broader um, production of hydrogen, I think there's there will definitely be these need for these these hydrogen hubs as we're seeing in Australia, because a lot of these countries that have a high demand for hydrogen won't be able to produce enough. So Germany probably won't. Places like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan certainly won't. So it's going to really rely on these hydrogen hubs in the likes of Australia and the likes of Chile, they're actually going to produce the hydrogen and transport it either as hydrogen, liquid hydrogen or as green ammonia. The whole sort of location of industry is going to be really interesting. I think if you're looking at these hydrogen hubs, say you're going to have a, a massive 20 gigawatt hydrogen complex in the middle of Kazakhstan, maybe then it makes sense to go and relocate your steel mill to the centre of Kazakhstan. That's true. Um, 
So I think it, it, it really depends on the actual economics of distributing each product individually as to whether or not it makes sense to relocate your hydrogen production, or actually whether or not it makes sense to move your production of whatever you're making to where the green hydrogen is going to be made. So here we are in the podcast, quietly redesigning all of society. Yeah, we're we're going to move steel mills to where they make hydrogen. We're going to put the hydrogen where there is enough water supply and where there's renewables. Uh, and perhaps that leads on to the next article we want to talk about, where Andreas has talked about how China is changing the shape of its grid, to, not just around you know around its industrial policy as much as around its renewables policy as well. Andreas. Yeah, you were you were talking about Germany's options of. It, well, it can't build its own renewables for hydrogen because it will run out of uh, land availability. So it either has to import the renewable energy or import the hydrogen. And you, you were suggesting, well, why don't they just build a transmission line for electricity from the North Sea and, and, and get there and have their own electrolyzers in Germany, I think. And if you look at what's going on, on in China with ultra high voltage lines, which only have like 5%, 10% losses over a few thousand kilometers, and I think they cost about $1.5 billion for a couple of gigawatts over a thousand kilometers. It's probably, it's definitely something that's happening more and more. Um, in China's case, I did a bit of digging into what, what they're planning because and they've got 105 gigawatts in total, so more than doubling from what they have currently uh, by 2025 uh, of, of capacity on their UHV transmission lines, which that's both DC and AC, uh, about 50-50. Once you look into it, uh, so DC is is more cost effective and more efficient in general, but it needs uh, substations to um, convert from from AC to DC on, on the local grid. So there's also a lot of AC lines just to connect uh, one heartland province to the next one and just sort of exchange power like that. Uh, whereas DC is more heading out into the into the deep desert for all of the um, solar and wind and and actually coal as well still, as well as the the western mountains heading towards tibet for all of the hydropower they have it's actually i think it's still much most of the power most of the power on these dc and ac lines these ultra high voltage is um coal but it's 43 percent renewable i think in 2020 which is much higher than the general chinese power mix and it's only going to rise so it, you can see how the renewables in, in china uh, are relatively more a, a big deal for the the broader the broader transmission over the whole nation Interestingly, if, if you've if, if you've got one of these lines passing your neighbourhood on the way into Shanghai or Beijing, the, the value of the land in that area is going to start rising because you can now put some more renewables on it and 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 you've already got a, a highway, a super highway going right past your door. So it's you know it's st- still going to change uh, Chinese society as they change their energy patterns. Yeah, I, I was thinking more when he started saying that. I was thinking, oh, it's it's a bit inconvenient for the locals living there, and they have the constant noise of the uh, <laughs> of the um, you know the uh, the power on the lines like zapping the air. But you're right, actually, it it, uh, it does improve the the land usefulness, especially if you're you know on somewhere marginal rather than which is most of it, I guess, in terms of uh, what it's useful. Um, but it, you know that kind of concern is why I think the Americans aren't building. Um, many of these lines. I think it's a difference between a society which is a centrally uh, managed, hmm. b where where the the roots of complaint and um, per, permission are um, 
simpler as opposed to more convoluted in Germany and uh, America. I mean, getting permission to do something like that in America is going to be tough. Hmm. I, I, I'm not sure if the US actually has any, because I, I saw people saying we should be building some and, and China's building some, but I don't think America actually has internal ones. Uh, and, no, but it's, it's it, I mean, we go back to the SEAM study, that the, um, the one that uh, Mr. Trump decided to bury came came out of NREL, which demonstrated that renewables would enjoy a much bigger marketplace if they uh, just put two lines crossing east-west so that the grids could be connected at much higher speed. Whether that's with an AC line or a DC line, I, I, I don't recall, but I, I imagine it was with um, high-voltage um, AC lines. But even so, it's still reshaping their grid and they've still got to put pylons up and they've still got to buy some land and and to put them on and they've still got to do the work so uh, it's getting permits for that is uh, much much harder in a country like america it's a weird delay because i think we have quite a few of them now in the uk well not within the uk but heading across the sea to france and norway and the netherlands and denmark and belgium don't we we have like five uh, uh, yeah i mean i'm not sure so and we've, we've got gas pipelines doing the same mm. as well yeah, we we are increasingly a country that needs to be able to sell buy and sell any form of energy uh, quickly from its neighbours. And um, you know the Chinese, of course, back when they were building the first uh, of these back in um, 1989, because it's China. They back then they had to um, buy in all the equipment and the technology from uh, I think it was Germany. Uh, but now, of course, they're the, they're the manufacturers, they're the, the ones building it elsewhere. So we see them building it um, even in a place like Brazil. I think it's planned. And they they also have a project um, under planning between uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia crossing the Sinai. I just uh, I could have written this article uh, quite a, for quite a while now. And it's it's been in the back of my mind. You might have remembered me saying, oh, this week I'll write about that UHV because it's something that's it is it is always in the background for a lot of the utility scale renewables that we mention, uh, certainly the hydrogen as well. We just don't mention it explicitly very often. I was interested in something else. I know it wasn't on our agenda uh, to talk about it, but I love the um, uh, call to action that you gave to the American government um, this week, Andrew. So talking about, I mean, we, we all had an opinion on Senator Manchin and why, why he won't support Build Back, Back Better. Um, you know, we all realise that uh, Manchin is, um, is is keeping his own fossil fuel loving uh, voters happy at the same time as keeping the family business running. But the, the, the bit that you got was 300 days of government left to get some form of uh, legislation through. I thought that's that's a key thing and it does really shape it because I'm assuming that America will be dumb enough to vote Trump in a second time um, after those, you know, at the next election. So you're absolutely right. America may have 300 days to save its entire green future. Yeah, and and uh, I, 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 you're the EV writer rather than me, but I think that's one of the big things that is not been signed in via spending yet is um, they, they the previous infrastructure bill that has been passed it has all of these subsidies for EV charging stations, but it doesn't have, a, there's no subsidy yet for 
the actual EVs themselves, right? Uh, right, there's the existing subsidies, which is just the first 200,000 cars for each manufacturer. Yeah, so the, the whole thing's sort of walking on one leg if they don't pass at least the, the, the renewables part of this uh, this upcoming bill that has been upcoming for a while. Uh, a while back, actually, I wrote this article saying Biden's spending agenda remains stalled uh, uh, about these two bills. And then the next week they passed the smaller one. And I was very annoyed with myself. <laughs> so so at least <laughs> at least I feel like less of an idiot that they're still struggling. But Biden's a talented politician. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you like his policies or not. He's used to getting things done. Uh, and sometimes he's just a pragmatist and says, well, the best thing we can get done is this, so let's get it done. And and I think by hook or by crook, some level of subsidy will be pushed through. But um, And I know you're identifying this $555 billion segment, which is part of the second bill, which is mostly going to, to drive all that renewables activity. Um, and it may not be that, that large sum of money. It may be just enough to trigger the next three or four years. One thing that nobody out there gets and I'm, is that um, you only need to subsidise electric cars until Tesla produces one for $25,000. Because once they don't need subsidising, the benefits of electric cars sell themselves once they cost the same price as any other car. And we're only talking three years. We're probably only talking two now. We're in 2022. So if they could just subsidise them for the duration of this government, any even if Trump comes back in, they can't. It, no one's going to stop uh, the electric revolution, even even in America. It's already accelerating, but it's not accelerating as fast as it would do with full unfettered um, subsidies. Uh, and but right I, now they, they have the presidency, the Senate, if you can't mention as a Democrat and and the Congress, but uh, I, I don't know the full intricacies of passing things through the House and the Senate. But if they lose one of them, it, it gets a lot harder. And if they lose both, it's very hard. And I think they're going to lose both in 2022 in the midterms. Well, um, and then you know they might even retain the presidency, like like I suggest in this article, maybe a bit fancifully. They might retain the presidency even while still not regaining uh, one or both of the Senate and the House. So it could be a very long time. I'm not going to start to become a political commentator. In fact, looking at the political dimension, I think we've we've got to understand this in the energy market in particular. Politicians endorse decisions that are already made. Politicians do not make decisions. Now, that Build Back Better campaign is 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 a is a a point a case in point that you know if the government could pay for everything, um, yes, they could fix it. They could fix the energy. uh, uh, transition, but the government can't because it can never get enough um, momentum behind one vote or the other. There's always somebody getting in the way, and we've got the same situation going on in in Europe uh, at the moment, where uh, we're we, 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 it's not decided yet, but there's this idea going around from the oil lobby that uh, Europe should at least count natural gas as a green a green bridge technology and they should also count nuclear and so Macron is arguing with the new um, German uh, premier about this and there there is um, clearly some statement about to be made where we're going to do the most ridiculous thing which is called natural gas green 
uh, as long as it's built before 2030 and as long as it only gives off a certain amount of um, CO2. But of course, that neglects all the research that people have done that shows that uh, most of the emissions from natural gas are fugitive emissions that come prior to selling the gas. So that will just be a free for all to import a load of gas into um, Europe from America and charge us the earth for it. But like all these things, politicians don't make these decisions. They can make a rule or not make a rule. What will happen is you would be, they keep forgetting. You can never forget the energy industry is a least cost industry. If something else costs less than what you're doing, everyone's gonna buy the something else. You're gonna buy the cheaper option. And right now, um, neither of neither nuclear, with, with as much political uh, force behind it, or oil, with as much commercial oil company force behind it, are in a position where um, they can push um, the price of gas down and the price of nuclear down so that it's economically viable. They're not. They're neither are viable. And uh, with the price of gas right now, if it doesn't come down in the next two or three years, its moment will have passed. It, it seems really strange that they're, they're promoting natural gas in that way, because I thought the EU was the most uh, aggressive uh, policy what forum in, in the world uh, for the climate agenda. And I thought they'd already gotten rid of coal. So what is gas green compared to if they've already replaced the coal with it? Absolutely. But it's 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 all it, all this is, is the debate happening through the politicians leaking onto the pages of the national newspapers of France, Germany and the UK. Hmm. And and that debate is, is is fueled by Eastern Europeans who just want to import more Russian gas because it's the easier option for them right now hmm. because um, Putin's offered them a, a sweet deal on, on the price because he's not going to be shipping any to Germany or the rest of us um, because Nord Stream 2 is not going to be, be permitted. So it's all a political game and no, hmm. none of it you're absolutely right. The voters of Europe are 100% behind climate change mitigation and they will not stand for it. But but that doesn't mean that the, that the EU won't pass the law. Um, it's just that either nothing will happen after the law's passed or all the politicians that passed it will get voted out of office.